Welcome back, Cape League fans, for another episode of the Cape League Podcast. On today's episode, we have a former Wareham Gateman who went on to have a great pro career. He now works as an analyst for Marquee Sports and ESPN, while also working as a contributor to The the Athletic, on top of teaching in Connecticut. We're super excited to share this interview with you. So here he is, Doug Glanville. All right. We now welcome on a very special guest. He is a former Wareham Gateman and winner of the Cape League's Outstanding Pro Prospect Award. He went on to have a tremendous pro career for teams like the Chicago Cubs, Philadelphia Phillies, and the Texas Rangers. Currently, he works as a baseball analyst for ESPN and NBC Sports, contributes to The Athletic, and teaches sports and society in Connecticut. I'm pleased to welcome Doug Glanville. Thanks so much for coming on, Doug. How are you doing? All right, doing well. Well, Stephen, I just an update. I I ended up going over to Marquee Sports Network from NBC. Beautiful. Uh, this, so that was a that was a cool transition. The Cubs started their own network, <laughs> so uh, so I followed them over there. But uh, yeah, really great to be here. Uh, Cape Cod was such an incredible, inspirational, important summer for my entire baseball future. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I hold it close to my heart, and I'm still in touch with my host family. Uh, it's really incredible how long that experience has stayed with me. I'm, I'm glad that you had such a good experience. I mean, I, I grew up in Sandwich, so the Cape League was a big part of my life and being able to talk to, you know, guys like you who had tremendous success and, you know, became, you know, went to the majors and just a huge advocate for the league. It's really cool for me and, you know, everyone listening. So we definitely appreciate you coming on. Um, but let, let's kick it off. I mean, what made you fall in love with the, the game of baseball at a young age? What made you want to play? I have to give a lot of credit to my brother. You know, I have an older brother who's uh, almost eight years older. And he was so excited to have a little brother to kind of groom. And I remember he wrote down on a scorecard, like a score sheet on the outside saying, here's kind of my brother's pathway to Major League Baseball. And it included wiffle ball and stick ball and stratomatic and all these things. So he kind of laid out a map. And of course I was looking up to my big brother. So I was always playing against him in wiffle ball. And eventually I got old enough where I was holding my own against him. And we had like fierce competitions and, and a lot of fun. So, so he really instilled the, the passion for the game. We, uh, it was to the point where we both play on our summer league games and we come home and we'd go play by play for both of our games. So that was kind of my early commentary days, <laughs> but uh, I mean, we love baseball. And if it wasn't in season, we were playing stratomatic baseball in the winter. I mean, we just never stopped. So I think that love reminds me of my kind of brotherhood to me. Yeah. It's funny you said that. Cause I have an older brother too, four years older and he like, we played college soccer together. Actually, we got to play a couple of years together at college and, I would not be the player I was if it wasn't for him pushing me and just, um, you know, again, same thing. He always wanted a little brother and having his guidance definitely helped me be the player I was. So I can definitely relate to that. Um, but you mentioned, you know, the plan over the summer. So when you think of the Cape League, right, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind to, uh, for you when you think about the Cape? Uh, I think of like mystique. That's like one of the first words, <laughs> you know, mm. you know, the fog rolling in and uh, yeah, it was, there is something really, magical about the Cape. And I think when you, you know, I played up here, uh, I, I just remember, you know, it was, first of all, it was a little cold when it started. It's like, wow, it's kind of chilly up here that night. So, uh, you know, but there's something nostalgic about it that you're almost playing through something iconic and you could feel it because it's, it's something, the commitment of the fans, 
there's always there's this long history the legacy of the families that continue to go and bring their children is clearly passed on and how it weaves into the fabric of the communities and how, you know, whether it was the city hall where I worked as a job, I had my day job, uh, whether it was the families and their roles in the community. I just thought there was such a continuity and a connection uh, between so many aspects of, of the surrounding communities for this, this moment to surround themselves around baseball. You know, I, uh, and so, you know, wood bats, you know, like I said, the fog rolling in, the dew on the grass. I mean, you, you could write a book on it. I'm sure there's been many, but I, um, I think you just feel baseball to its soul in the Cape. And uh, I don't know, it just something captures your imagination. So I, that stayed with me and it's it, to this day. And we're talking, I played what, 1990. So we're 30 years later and I still have this really warm feeling about the Cape. It, you, you definitely said it right there. I mean, there's just something about the Cape that gives you that like pureness atmosphere and that vibe. Um, every time you're there, just sitting in the stands, like it's, you know, the, the, all the stadiums are kind of in like little neighborhoods almost. And it just has that like, you know, like free baseball type of feel to it. And it's just like, that's how the game's supposed to be. Um, so I totally understand that. But so in the early nineties, obviously when you played, it was, you know, everything was different. Technology was different, all of that. So how did you end up even hearing about the Cape league and what was the process for you and in getting involved and in getting to play? I was fortunate that I played at the university of Pennsylvania. So we were kind of more of an underdog school. Ivy league didn't necessarily produce a lot of major league players. And, and so fortunately the year before I went up there, the 1989 season, there was a couple of players who were, you know, solid players on our team who played up in the Cape and were successful. They played for Bourne, I believe. And one was Joe Delacari, uh, who got drafted and is you know, in scouting and high up in front offices these days. And uh, Jason Sterajonis. So there's a couple of players that went up and you know, kind of held their own. And so it gave the Cape a little insight that, hey, these Ivy Leaguers might be able to play a little bit and we should keep our eyes open. So when I started playing, I, you know, I came to Penn in 1988, really into the spring 89. And I played, you know, I played my usual freshman season and I played well. And I think there was a couple of Cape scouts that sort of started paying attention. And, you know, eventually the calls came in about playing. And of course, the, the total geek in me, I was an engineer, <laughs> they uh, born called. And I think I had three teams, maybe Bourne, Chatham or Harwich, maybe and, and Wareham. And Bourne was sort of like, oh, you know, you can come up and work at the local grocery store. And I was like, you know, I want like an engineering job. <laughs> so, so Wareham was, got me a job at the Economic Development uh, Corporation at City Hall, at Town Hall. And it was an awesome job. I did like regression analysis for loans and stuff. So I totally uh, based the difference on the job. So I was a renegade who went to Wareham and the others went to Bourne. But I, I really uh, loved it. And, and so, you know, so that's how I kind of, I learned about it through teammates at college who were older and they really opened the door so that I had an opportunity to, to play and it really worked out well. So with, you know, with the reputation of the Cape League and getting that opportunity, like leading into that summer, did you have any concerns with there, whether it was professionally or personally about, you know, going to the Cape that summer and living there? You know, not so much. I mean, the good news is I grew up 
my brother, you know, as I mentioned, had me using a wood bat in like little league and he usually insisted on it. So he had me groomed in that way. And then I played in the Metropolitan League, the Met League in New Jersey, which was a really excellent league. And they use wood bats also. Mm -hmm. So I was not really worried about the transition. Uh, I didn't know where I stood from the standpoint of, you know, going up against, you know, USC and players from these prestigious universities. I felt I could do well. I had confidence, but I just didn't know. I just, I, I kind of had a chip about like, I want to really hold my own with these guys. <laughs> so, sure. um, so I think that mattered. And, and there was some early politics. Like I remember I was playing center field initially and I, I you know, looking back, I probably was still raw at it, but um, mysteriously, like, you know, they moved the USC guy <laughs> into center <laughs> and I was moved to left and I was like, clearly not going to be a left fielder in the major league, it wasn't a power hitter, but, um, but, you know, I kind of, that was actually a good lesson because I realized that, okay, I could complain about it or I could really just get better as an outfielder and, mm-hmm. and really realize that I had to improve. And so that was a good lesson for me. And I ended up, you know, good friends, of course, with Mark Smith and I love the coaches. So there was no hard feelings in the end, but uh, it was just getting that first kind of footing was, was a challenge. And, uh, but it definitely paid off uh, in great dividends because it wasn't just learning how to be a better ball player physically. There was a, a lot of other things about preparation and focus and concentration and maturity that had to come along with it. And that was really important to my development too. Yeah. And that's, and that's one thing that's been consistent when I've spoken to um, former players of the Cape league who are either, you know, playing in the majors now or, or retired. They've all kind of mentioned, you know, going to the Cape league kind of helped put in, put into perspective, like the things you got to do to be a pro, um, you know, and, and, and doing the right things and the coaching there was always pretty solid. So, so that's awesome to hear. Now, the one thing I always had a question on, you know, growing up on the Cape myself, I've only been exposed to the Cape league, but I understand that you, you said you played in the Met league, then you also played in Puerto Rico. So, you know, how did playing in the Cape league kind of prepare you to play in Puerto Rico, but then also what were like some of the differences that you saw between some of the leagues? Yeah. Well, I think the, you know, the Cape clearly was, that was the gold standard for summer league baseball. I mean, you know, I definitely knew that you heard about the Cape, you heard about Alaskan league then, and there was other leagues, but, um, but that was the league. That's where you wanted to be to get on the real, the professional map. And you knew if you played well there, that was the, the, going to propel you. And I think playing well gave me a lot of confidence to go back to my junior year. And really, you know, first of all, people would be paying attention to how I was doing. So that was good. And the scouts were there. But also when I've been, you know, Puerto Rico was also a winter league and, you know, it's professional. It's had the same type of tone to it because there was this, this beauty to it, the, the people, the, the nostalgia, the music, the history, but also that this was the stepping stone to the major leagues. The only difference is, yeah, I was a pro already in the minors and I was trying to break into the big leagues, whereas Cape, I was trying to get into the pros, but I had a very similar type of trajectory. And, and so Puerto Rico, I felt the same level of like, okay, I, I'd be confident. I'm playing against some of the best in the world. If I do well, I can do, um, I can, I can make it. And I kind of tapped a lot of the confidence and the feelings I had from Cape Cod to, you know, say, hey, I can, I can do this. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, and this is winter ball, you know, that's what winter ball is that time to get that extra education in, in baseball. The ones who really want it and want to continue to work hard will get that bump and, and it definitely helped me. Mm-hmm. So then 
kind of where you are now, have you been back to the Cape at all, like, or, or the Cape League? And if you have, you know, what, have you noticed any changes within the Cape League or has it mostly kind of stayed the same? I, I have. I've been to um, the last few years. We have um, some family who lives up in the Cape in YD. Mm-hmm. And every time we go visit them, it's really like God brothers and sisters. We go to a game. So I've taken my kids to a bunch of YD games, even though they were our rival and beat us in the finals. <laughs> in yeah. But um, I, yeah, and I loved it. It's just, I, I really, it felt so familiar and it felt so um, special still, just n- not only passing it to my kids, which is what the fans did often when I was playing, but also, you know, it's just going to the concession stand, getting a hot dog and the kids just running around like three-year-olds just running and down the right field line. And, uh, you know, maybe they're paying attention, maybe they're not, you know, but it was, um, but it was really cool. And, uh, and of course, watching some good baseball, you realize how really incredibly talented these players are. So it was kind of weird to see in that way, like, wow, you know, that was me at some point out there scraping, driving and commuting to uh, games. And <laughs> but um, but yeah, it still has the same feel. That's what's so amazing. It's so consistent. And I'm sure the technology's there and the cameras and all that, but it still had that organic uh, tone to it. And, uh, you know, I just think that's something that you hold on to. It's very special. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I, I feel that. But kind of pivoting to your your pro career, you know, one thing that I thought was really cool is the fact that you kind of grew up a, um, a Phillies fan and you had the opportunity to play for them and then even retire as a Phil, uh, as a Philly. So what did that opportunity kind of mean to you and your family? Yeah, well, you know, you know, going up to the Cape, coming out of that a bona fide, you know, first round draft pick and, you know, starting my career with the Cubs. You know, that was just, the you know, everything was the crowning jewel, right? You got drafted and you kind of make it. So I got called up in 96. But uh, within a year and a half, I was, you know, doing well, but, you know, just didn't fit into the Cubs plan at the time. And they traded me to Philadelphia. But that's kind of where the dream really doubled down on me because here I am already loving the game. And then I go to my childhood team, you know, so uh, that was so cool. And I wish we had more success when I was there because, Nothing would have been better to bring a championship to Philadelphia, but, but we, um, you know, I just was able to break that ice, and and I know that the Cape was looking over my shoulder because what the family that hosted me, the Donahues, they, you know, I'm still in touch with them 30 years later. That's crazy. I watch the daughters grow up. I see them. We visit them when I went up to the Cape to these last couple of years. Um, they were on my Zoom birthday call in the summer. You know. Uh, and actually, they did it from Spillane Field. They went out to the field no way. and called in for Zoom. So, you know, you can imagine uh, how incredibly uh, dear that experience was. I mean, I had some really uh, monumental experiences there outside of the, you know, doing well and the awards and all that. It was, um, I, well, I remember I got in a car accident in the Cape Cod, which was kind of, I was okay. Unfortunately, my teammate who was, I was driving with my college teammate, and, you know, the fog had rolled in and, and there was a, a gas station where they had parked the pickup truck, not the pickup, the tow truck in front of the stop sign. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those really short, it was called, sub, they're called substandard stop signs. And they're like five feet tall. You could put your elbow on it. And I never saw it. And it was foggy and I was, it wasn't going that fast. And then the next thing you know, we were in a ditch. Oh, God. And, and so that was scary. And I remember getting up the next morning and playing and being so sore. Unfortunately, my teammate was okay in the passenger seat. But uh, yeah, it was like, and then, you know, totaled my mom's car 
and had to like, you know, get a ride from my rest of my teammates. And, but in some ways that bonded me more with my teammates because I, I wasn't driving them anymore. <laughs> I had to like, ride along. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we were crazy kids, of course, you know, people going fast over speed bumps and, you know, uh, but the other thing I remember falling in love with was the uh, cheesecake, you know, cheesecake oh, yeah. was, uh, there was a place, what's the place? There was a deli in Wareham and I can't even remember the name, but it was the name of a, a, a guy's name uh, i want to say italian name it's something deli uh it's terrible i can't remember because they were a big part of the, they're, they're a big part of the boosters of our team so I'll, I'll have to remember this one but um i never had cheesecake before and i was like let me just try it and i just so hooked on this thing uh had it every single day so so there was memories and accolades like we had i remember bats we were staying in the attic of our house and bats got in and they were middle of the night we we're hearing this high-pitched sound there was a, another story was there was a fire next door and I actually ran in and like got the kid out of it. You know, like it was like, oh my God. Uh, Jose Canseco. It wasn't, fortunately it wasn't like a blazing fire, but I didn't think anything of it. I was like home and, you know, I think I saw smoke or smelled something. I went outside and I know there was like kids in the house. This kid was in the house. So I, so, I mean, I'm telling you, it was like, you can't even make this stuff up. Right. No. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, but of course the, the memories were so deep and and you remember i i was in a movie called summer catch oh yeah cape, cape cod so uh yeah so i i just realized that you know the 30 years later story is just as poignant as it was when i was there and outside of its significance to my career mm-hmm. it was relationships i built in my life and just experiences of just trying things you know i, I shaved my head bald that summer so you know it just um I don't know what it was in the air, but we uh, we felt adventurous and we seized the opportunity. Yeah, I mean that's like a crazy story, and the fact that you were in summer catch, like you said that you were in a fire, and there's like the, the <laughs> clubhouse lights on fire in summer catch. I was just getting so many so many connections right there. Um, that that's hilarious, but uh, I'm glad everyone's safe. Um, yes, thankfully, but then you know one of the things that I kind of wanted to touch on with, with your pro career in, in 1999, you had a stellar season i mean batting 329 i mean 325 incredible defense like kind of going back to like doing things differently did you do anything differently that summer did any uh, that year did anything feel differently that like allowed you to produce like that because you don't see people batting 325 that much anymore yeah you know it was um everything came together and you know i had a really good run up until that season you know from the time i played in puerto rico i came back in 95 Uh, and I started really putting it together and I hit well, then I went and hit 300 in triple a, I hit 300 in Puerto Rico and, and I just started to feel it. And in 97, I hit 300 in the big leagues. And and so I was on a roll, um, 98, I was finally the first full-time starter with the Phillies. And what was tough about that is learning how to pace yourself for 162 games. So I kind of collapsed in September, (laughs) basically, as Terry Francona, my manager said, uh, looks like the bat is swinging you and we're going to give you a day off here. So I was really tired. And so I didn't play well in September, but I came back in 99 and I was really kind of determined to have a real, a good September to kind of understand how to be a big leaguer from tape to tape. And by then I was older, you know, by most standards, I was 28 and I had to figure out like, okay, I'm getting to the point where I, I this is my breakthrough. I got to break out here. And and yeah, I was a step ahead the whole season. I kind of knew what the pitchers were trying to do to me. I, I was confident. I was fortunately healthy. Uh, and, 
and really, and actually I missed a, like a week at the end because I got hit by a pitch and, you know, it was two, two hits short of the national league uh, hit title. So, so everything was, was really right with that season. And uh, it was the first time I just felt free, you know, like I, I'm, you know, it's, there's something incredible about just playing baseball in general as a, as a career. And yeah. then it's incredible to play well and just to know that, wow, you know, I'm at the highest level and these guys can't get me out. You know, it was just this strange euphoria that washes over you that you've made it and, and you're one of the best of the best. And, and, um, and you still love the game. You just love the competition, just going stadium to stadium. It was, I was a kid in a candy store going to, wow, that's Wrigley. Wow. That's Fenway. Wow. You know, going playing in these iconic parks and seeing coaches that were childhood heroes of yours. And uh, I mean, just awesome. And so that was just the year of everything came together. Yeah. So you mentioned, and I'm really curious about this. Your season's always so long, right? Over 160 games. And you mentioned, you know, having to learn how to pace yourself. So what were some of the things that you started doing differently? Like, were you just kind of burning yourself out at a young age, like trying to do too much too soon? Or like, you know, kind of paint that picture for us a little bit more. Well, I'd say it has to, you know, you take the lessons of 98, you know, collapsing in September. Uh, that was one adjustment I had to make about now minor leagues. You're used to playing up until September, unless you're in the playoffs. So I was fine then. And then when I, this weird full month of September was like, wait, wait a minute. My body was just kind of adapting. You hear about that in the NBA, these college players yeah. go and then they have to run, you know, all these games and it's just a different rhythm. So I think the adjustments I made, well, one of the adjustments was off the field. You know, I got traded to Philadelphia. That was my college town. And I felt compelled to agree to do everything. And I was running around like, you know, go, you know, every day, have a game and go back and do charity events. And there were good causes, but I just didn't say no. Mm-hmm. And I was completely exhausted from that. And so 99, I kind of went in, my position was no, but I will come to you with certain charities that I care about. Mm-hmm. And, and if they align with the Phillies, you know, so be it. So that was a that was one thing, just taking command of my off the field life yeah. a, a little bit better, and and then just you know working out how to train carefully, how to pace yourself without you know not being aggressive, right? You can't pace yourself and then not try hard. So I had to learn how to find those little respites in the season to take care of myself. So it, you know eventually it started to click. You know I, I started to understand what it meant to be a major league player from beginning to end. And, um, and that was sort of that, the moment of clarity, like, you know, I've made it, I've, I'm here. Well then again, you had a moment where I think every kid dreams of was, you know, getting that game winning hit in the 2003 uh, game three NLCS. I mean, walk us through that. What was that feeling like? I mean, that's seriously something that every kid dreams about is getting that game winning hit in a, in a, in a playoff game. So like, what was that like for you? That just, again, just something else like seeing Fenway and Wrigley for the first time, like, wow, I can't believe I just did that. Yeah, it was like that. I mean, <laughs> um, I well, here's the you know the backstory is at 2003, I I actually left Philadelphia after five years, and I and Philly was you know my team growing up. I loved the front office, the administrators. I was a starter. I lived in had a house there. There's a lot of reasons for me to stay, but I lost my father the last game of the season in 2002, and it happened to be the day I got my 1,000th hit of my career. So it was a real surreal, uh, you know, powerful moment. And Larry Bow was the manager who was really intense. And I just wanted a different, you know, feel. I just wanted to kind of get to something new. 
and I was starting to lose my starting job to Marlon Bird. So I kind of said, well, you know, maybe it's time to leave. So I explored free agency and I signed with Texas that year. And so Texas was great. I did get hurt, came back, played well, but they traded me because we were terrible and they traded me to the Cubs. And so that's where I got my playoff experience. So Dusty Baker was the manager mm -hmm. and I was, I was probably the hottest I had been in years that, that July when I got traded. I mean, I was unconscious. Mm -hmm. And so it was frustrating in one hand because I got traded. So that's good because the Cubs ended up making the playoffs or they were on their way to, although we didn't know that at the time, but, it, but also I was not a starter anymore. I was kind of off the bench. So it was a kind of mixed feeling because yes, I could make the playoffs could, but I also I was a free agent. And if I'm sitting on the bench, it's going to be hard for me to get a job. So I was, you know, torn. So one man's trash is another man's treasure feeling. And uh, so towards the end of that season in 03, we, you know, we, it was exciting. We made the playoffs at the last minute kind of thing. And um, I wasn't really starting. I barely made the playoff roster. I only got one at bat in the NLDS against the Braves. And then here comes the NLCS and I get, I get the pinch hit and, you know, I hadn't batted in a week or whatever. And I'm facing Braden Looper, who is a sinker ball pitcher, which is usually equals disaster for me. Yeah. And somehow I get the barrel on a sinker and hit this ball in the gap. And I see the left field of Jeff Conine dive. And I'm like, that was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, I'm just, you know, I just keep going. So, um, and that was it. That was my one hit, my one opportunity. Uh, and I, I just did what I could. That's the best I could have done with the situation. So, you know, the huge crowd too. I mean, 60, I don't know how many thousand, a whole, you know, you know, pro player park then or Joe Robbie or whatever it was. They, uh, you know, they often had tarp everywhere and that place was packed. So, you know, that will just, that, that was my moment. That was my playoff moment. I only had one shot at it and did what I could. Unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't make it to the, to the World Series that year. But uh, that, that's, that will stay with me because that was really my only major league playoff experience. Well, it's, it's pretty cool because, you know, being, being a bench player, you know, I, I've, you know, in the past, I've played role, role positions before. It's one of those things where you don't know when your number is going to be called, but when it gets called, you, you better damn be ready. Um, sounds like you were and you absolutely delivered. And, you know, now you have a memory for your entire life. So that's definitely pretty cool. But um, so then, you know, when you wrapped up your career, you obviously, you, you, you signed that contract with the Phillies to retire as a Philly. Obviously, that's really cool. But, you know, what made you want to become an analyst after your playing career? Yeah, well, the Phillies contract, by the way, was interesting because I, I want to say I was the first player to do that. It wasn't that, you know, at least legally. Because, uh, you know, imagine how simple it sounds. I call the Phillies and say, hey, I'd like to retire a Philly. I thought it'd be like, cool, come in, we'll put you in uniform. They're like, no, it's actually a legal process. And it took months, months, because they wanted to officially have me in the organization, but they didn't want it to be service time or have benefits owed to me and all this stuff. So they had to get these legal. So they eventually created a standard document like that. Uh, Mike Lieberthal used it too. Okay. So, um, so that was, that was a, a cool way to go, but I didn't know what was next. And I did some real estate. I did all this stuff. And the moment that broke for me was the Mitchell report, which exposed steroid use, PED use in baseball and it named names and it called people out. Excuse me. And, um, and I think from there, I realized that, you know, maybe I have something to add to this because I was a player. I worked as a union rep, the Players Association. I had, you know, some understanding into the issues of, of uh, PED testing and so on. 
And I felt compelled to write something about it. And when I wrote, I just felt so comfortable and I had great English teachers in high school and it, it just went really well. So ESPN picked up on it, the New York Times. And before I looked up, I had a column with the New York Times and that, that's still going on. I mean, I still write for them in these uh, freelance capacity now, but it was, uh, so that breakthrough really helped me find my voice post-career. My dad loved poetry, so it was a way to channel him. And, um, and I think that, you know, I was able to still love the game, but give a, a perspective to people who may not even be interested in, but see that it's, uh, it's universal, it's universal lessons. And so that was the breakthrough. And then eventually ESPN noticed. They saw I was getting a lot of run. I was writing these columns. I was appearing on radio shows and all kinds of networks to follow up on my writing. So they brought me in and said, you know, let's interview. And I waited about a year, actually, because I was enjoying what I was doing. And then uh, I interviewed and hear from them for about two months. And then they said, hey, you're hired if you want to take this job. And interestingly enough, they offered me a three-year contract at first. And I turned it down to take a two-year contract because I was, I wanted to make sure I protected my writing rights and I wanted to make sure I said, all right, we'll see how it goes and see if you will give me bandwidth to keep writing. And that will be the judge on whether I continue. So that was kind of a cool first step. And uh, the good thing about ESPN is I learned how to express these ideas in many different platforms. Mm -hmm. They, they, they're a very good teaching place when it comes to throw, basically throwing you in the fire (laughs) is what they do. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, so I'm very thankful for now what is 10 plus years, I guess now uh, with a little hiatus in there. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it fits me well because I, I love writing. I love to bring people together through sport. Uh, I grew up in an inclusive, diverse society that sees uh, love everywhere. And I just think baseball embodied that and it connected to me, my father and the, and the values of my family growing up. And, and I also just could, kind of call truth to power, you know, just really call attention to things through sport. And I'm teaching, you know, at universities now. And so I, it's worked out incredibly well. And I, I feel fortunate that I was able to find that second career because it's not a given. A lot of players struggle, even if they made a ton of money, they struggle with what's next because, you know, how can you compete with Major League Baseball? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I recognize that that's not easy. And, um, and so I know that, um, I need to cherish the fact that I have this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And so I've always been curious about, especially being a former player and, you know, again, all the different outlets that you have, there's going to be times when you're either asked about a player who may not be performing well, and you may have to be a little bit critical on their performance. How do you go about approaching that? Knowing that you were a former player, you, you kind of go through those ups and downs without trying to, you know, trying to give an honest review of the, of the player, but you also don't want to trash the guy, you know, how do you kind of like handle that situation? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll, I'll give you two stories to that. One was my interview for ESPN. And one of the, one of the things I had to do was to do a mock. It was a game that had taken place and I had to do a color analyst, a color analysis and Carl Ravitch was the play by play. And when I came out of it, the evaluator was like, you know, ask me questions about, well, you know, uh, what's your style going to be, things like that. And I kind of had, you know, and I could tell where the questions were going and I framed it. I said, look, I'm not going to be Charles Barkley. Just, I'm just not going to be that guy. Uh, I'm a long form writer. I try to think things through. I frame it. I try to find really interesting tidbits. I tell stories, you know, I mean, I knew that that's who I was, 
even though like I've learned how to be give sound bites and all that, I just knew that, you know, I wasn't going to be Stephen A. Smith. Right. So, so, um, so they, they accepted that. And, um, and Carl Ravitch challenged me, said, are you going to be, are you going to feel satisfied when you only have 12 seconds to respond when you want to talk for 12 minutes? And so that's, that was my challenge going in, but I found a good way to um, kind of embrace it. Uh, and I, you know, so I think that that was, um, you know, a watershed moment for me to realize that, you know, I can, I can kind of break into this field. And the other story is actually comes from Alex Rodriguez, uh, who was a teammate of mine in, in Texas. And I got, got along well with, and after I had retired, long retired, um, he, I came across him I'm trying to think where it was. It was spring training one year. And, you know, it was years after I was retired, he was still playing. And he said, look, I really appreciate your work. And I've figured out one thing about your industry. You can make your mark by either A, ripping someone or B, educating someone. And I really thought that that was a very insightful way to frame it. And I think, so the answer is I, I always teach through and you don't have to, you can be critical in a way that's constructive and, but you teach through it instead of saying, well, you failed and you're terrible. And look, there may be room for that always. I understand that there's sometimes you call stuff out, but I still think you could call stuff out and still teach. And, you know, so, Hey, okay. He botched that ball in the hole, but what he was trying to do was circle the ball on his backhand side. He didn't open the glove enough and that's how he, he, he kicked it. You can still talk about the critical part of it, but still, spit it into something educational. So that's just been my motto. Hence, I'm a professor. (laughs) And my mom was a teacher and my dad was a teacher. So, um, but yeah, I think that's the, so therefore I I didn't find it uncomfortable. I I really didn't. I I knew that that was the avenue I would take and for better or for worse. Well, I'm happy you said that because it's really interesting. Like like the NBA, for example, you see all the time, sometimes they, um, they're overly criticized at times and you can kind of see them, you know, clap back on, on Twitter, Instagram, something like that. So it's, it's nice for me and, and for the viewers out there to kind of see how you go about it as like, listen, like I'm criticizing you, but it's more constructive. I'm educating everybody. And like you said, like not the fact that he made the mistake, but why he made the mistake. And like, I think that's something that a player would appreciate too. Cause it's like, you know, I, I recognize that too. If I opened up my glove a little bit more, I would have made the play something like that. So I, I love that, but Obviously, right now we're living living in some interesting times, you know, with with the whole COVID pandemic. How has this kind of impacted the way you go about doing your job? Well, tremendously. Um, you know, maybe my ESPN story kind of tells how crazy it's been. Because, all right, when I when I first started working at ESPN, they're in Connecticut. Uh, I was living in Chicago, so that was you know. So I flew in, and you know, all that. And, you know, that was doable, but, you know, it's, it's, it's taxing, you know, young kids, you're trying to be home also, but I didn't have a whole lot of appearances. So it wasn't, you know, as bad. And then the good news is I started to gain more opportunity there. And I had moved to North Carolina saying, well, you know, I just have to go to Connecticut X amount of times a year. Well, the irony of that is they had me in studio all that time. And then when I moved to Connecticut, I started doing games. <laughs> so I started traveling. So I was like, wait a minute, I'm here now. <laughs> so COVID has put so much, you know, from a, from a professional standpoint, put so much emphasis on being, staying put, working from home, just like we're doing now. Right. Mm-hmm. It's um, and, and working out of studio and that's worked well because I live in Connecticut and it's easy for me to get to the studio in 25 minutes. 
and and so it's changed the fact that the studio has become has gotten a new life on what it means to events as opposed to like all right we're all going here you know imagine the entourage to do wednesday night baseball you fly all these people in uh that's not possible anymore and i think the business will shift accordingly so it had a tremendous impact on and now the other aspect is i'm going to wear my professor hat is i've as i mentioned about the importance of sports and why I believe sticking to sports is, you know, only is, is undercutting and underselling and, and a disservice to sports because the lessons in sports are so much greater than the sport itself. Uh, it teaches so much about uh, equality and fighting for different walks of life, different people, because you're one team coming together. Like I went every spring training, I met people from all over the world, didn't know, might've had preconceived notions about, but then they became teammates and we had a common goal. That's a great lesson. A great, another great lesson is that you have rules by which you're supposed to abide by that are supposed to be equitably distributed and enforced. And that's a, a, another good example of our world. So, so I think that when you look at, you know, how COVID impacted that is sports stopped for a period and you started to see its value. You started seeing in a different way. You started to see what it means in its absence. Uh, and not just because we missed, you know, the Cowboys or whatever, but because players started to engage in a different way in this directness with the fans about issues that weren't just sports. Mm -hmm. They were about survival or taking care of employees that don't have jobs that used to take care of the stadium operations that you played in. Uh, you started to look at things differently. And it became a little different of a movement of people speaking out, athletes in particularly. And so when we had events like George Floyd or, you know, huge things that shifted our consciousness and, and reckoning towards race or whatever major issues, players had a voice, they believed in their voice. And, and so I think that that is the other aspect of how COVID has, has shifted that understanding. And I think athletes today expect to speak on issues of injustice. Uh, they, they've always been held to say you're a role model, but then been told to be silent when you speak out on injustice. Like, how does that work? You know, you, um, and I think as, you know, speaking as a black man, you know, I, I've never had what I would say the luxury to bifurcate my life and say, well, you know, I'm going to only do this on the field, but then I could be this off the field. I've had experiences, you know, off the field that I've had no control over, you know, that this has been simply for how I look or, you know, being in a certain neighborhood that people don't expect me to be there. And, and so I feel like I tap sports and how I approach those circumstances in a, in a positive way, in a positive outlook, looking at the best of us and the best of sport. So, so I think that is what you know, I tell my students that look, COVID exposed a lot of inequities in certain ways, exposed a lot of our focus towards you know, what we were kind of <clears throat> sometimes overlooking because sports distracted us. And I think in some ways has an opportunity to bring us together, even as there's you know, certain divisions. And, um, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of being able to use sport to raise really challenging issues. But at the same time, ob the objective is to look at the best of sport to connect us. And I, I say sport is uniquely situated to have leaders around that realm to be able to do that. And I think we should lean into that more. Absolutely. I, can, I cannot agree more with you. I mean, I think especially for somebody like me, I think that that's one of my biggest takeaways of like the stoppage was, I mean, across all sports, I mean, you see the NBA with what they're doing with trying to, you know, promote, you know, th that sort of a thing. And I think we need to do a lot more of it. And it wasn't until recently, 
pretty much when all this stuff started happening that, you know, people realized like it's not enough just to, um, you know, kind of be silent and not, you know, take part in that stuff. You have to speak out against it as well. And like, you know, really try and be an advocate for change. And it, it's really nice that we're finally starting to see people come together and try to accomplish that goal. And I think this is actually a good, you know, kind of leeway into the book that you published back in 2010, you know, um, the, the game from where I stand to ballplayers inside view, you know, what can the average Joe like myself, you know, kind of learn, what can we learn about the sport of baseball from your point of view by reading that book? Well, I, I was shooting to get that real insider view. I really wanted to bring people in and I didn't, I wanted to also avoid the, the whole resume rollout book, you know, like, you know, I was born under a tree in Teaneck, New Jersey, and the wolves picked me, you know, I just, it's like, you know, I, I just, I didn't want that story. I wanted to tell a different story. And so I tried to use this real insider look to kind of give almost in an a chronological way, you know, just like, and just tell a story through this memoir type of format, uh, but yet reveal all these secrets to the game in a fun way. And, and that was, that was the goal. I just wanted people to read it and come away with every emotion under the sun. Like, wow, that was powerful. That was, that made me cry. That made me laugh. That made me, and that that's baseball. That's the life in the game. And so you, you kind of look at my life through all these different perspectives. And then you see how other players have very similar uh, experiences, right? Whether I was traded or drafted or cut and released or a starter or a pinch hitter. And I had all these millions of roles and you see the game differently from all of them. And so I try to tell these stories of something like, how do you find an apartment when you break spring training and, you know, looking for a car lease or how do you date in the game, you know, and, or hang out with famous people or what do you think of this guy and, and, or steroids, or, I mean, I just tried to cover a lot and, uh, I'm constantly kicking around the next book, but you know, that book was, you know, kind of my teacher's edition, you know, I kind of laid it out in a way that you could, that I was hoping to be kind of evergreen because mm -hmm. it, it just sort of gives you the, as much as I could to tap the soul of the game. So, um, but yeah, that was a blast to write to calling all friends, old teammates and getting stories. And, uh, I, I really enjoyed the process. So I love writing and I, uh, I hope to get onto the next book soon. I, we all do. Can't wait. Can't wait to read it myself. I mean, just just your whole personality, just about inclusion and community and all of that. I think it all just kind of resonates back to what the Cape League is all about. You know, that's that's all the Cape League cares about. We want to bring in. We don't care, you know, who you are. We want to bring in good ball players. We want to we want to have a good show for everybody. We want to have all walks of life welcome. You know, to the Cape League and the fact that you're going out of your way. You know, you're teaching this stuff. You're you know you're talking about it like. You know, on your platforms, it's just a breath of fresh air that you're doing all of this. And I know that everybody appreciates it. And if we had more people like you, we'd be uh, we'd be in a lot better situation in society right now. Um, though the last question I really wanted to ask you about the game of baseball, it's been a heavy talking point, you know, the last couple of years, and that's how analytics has kind of come into the game of baseball. What is your thoughts on how analytics have changed the game? Yeah, this is a big topic. And, um, you know, I think of one current event we could tap is Theo Epstein of the Chicago Cubs uh, stepping down a uh, year left and said, it's time to move on. And one of the things he's reflected on is 
what have analytics come to mean in today's game? Now, they've always been there. I mean, baseball has been always a statistical game. But I think what's happened, what's today is it's, it's now a real-time algorithm producer on how you approach every situation. And, and I think the, the risk that, you know, baseball has always grappled with, right, is the soul of the game versus the numbers and, and are they, can they live together as one or not? And, and so what you run the risk of is you're constantly weighing the odds of circumstances. You say, well, you know, so just think about, all right, I'm on second base. I'm going to think about stealing third. Why? Well, there's a lefty on the mound. He has this really long move. And whenever he tilts his cap down, he's going to go home. You know, I read these things and I, I steal third. But what now they say, well, look, the, the probability of scoring a run, if you make it, goes up by 20 percentage points. But if you get caught with two outs or one out, you, it goes down by 40%. So the risk of you making it is not worth it in an individual choice, right? You can say, all right, if I steal third and I make it, okay, that helps. But the risk of me getting caught actually puts my team in a much more damaging situation. So instead of someone saying, well, let me tap my instincts and try to shift those percentages, you just don't go, just don't go. And so the algorithms are starting to eliminate complete op opportunities for certain plays to exist, hit and run, but, you know, <laughs> pitch out, what, you know, the list goes on. Now, fine, that's partly can be evolution, but part of it makes the game so risk averse. And when you become so risk averse, you lose the inspiration on a certain level, right? You lose like, like these low percentage plays are probably the things that are posters on our walls, yes. right? It's like, you know, what are the odds that Tom Lawless hits a home run in the World Series or Ozzie Smith or Tom Needenfuhrer or Dave Roberts stealing second and changing history, right? I mean, mm. that's what you miss. And you say, well, and it, and the, the, you saw it in the playoffs. I mean, Blake Snell, Blake Snell. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, and I saw, I covered the Cubs in the last couple of years, Kyle Hendricks, you know, it's like the, okay, well, he's got it into the seventh inning. So you just start predicting the future without the future happening. And you say, well, the odds are he's going to not be able to throw his slider anymore, you know, and 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 so you're you're working in this predictive way off of the past, and and so that data doesn't account for what you can't certainly can't say what's going to happen. Uh, you can you can weigh what you think might happen, and I think the the danger is there's a societal comparison to that because what, let's say I'm I did this at Wareham. I'm trying to evaluate housing loans, right? Or defaults. And, and you create like a profile of who's going to, to be able to pay their mortgage, right? You know what I found in that data? And I never will forget this 30 years later is it turned out the people who actually had the least amount of wealth and means were actually more uh, on time on their payments. It was like they, they had a, a interesting prioritization about like, okay, I got to pay this mortgage. I'm going to be on the street. And, and so we, so when you evaluate situations, we don't even realize like the bias that sort of creeps into it anyway. Uh, there are algorithms created with certain understandings and objectives. I mean, how would the game change if you said, you know what, we're not even going to have any fences anymore, or the bases are going to be 80 feet apart instead of 90. I mean, that, these are things that we kind of skip over because we think, okay, this is this permanent structure. And we're going to just build the algorithm around managing a bullpen. Mm. So, so that's what you're kind of losing. You, you're losing 
um, I think that's what's eroding slowly. And look, I could wear my old school like grobbly hat and say, well, I used to love to try to take out the shortstop on a double play. True. And I understand why that rule came in with Chase Utley and, or Buster Posey getting hurt. And they said, okay, it's safety. I understand that. But there's other aspects that are like that to scratch your head over. And like, was the instant replay really meant to a guy going 20 miles an hour, sliding into second, coming one millimeter off the base and on super micro slow-mo, they say, oh, he's out. Yeah, he's out technically, but is that really the point? Is that what we want to be as a sport where we're, we're, we're looking at microfilm, micro level and, and not seeing the big picture? So uh, I remember talking to Theo Epstein. I wrote an, an article called The Death of the Stolen Base. Yeah. And one of the things, and this is how cool his thinking is sometimes. He said, what if we just made the bases bigger? And let's say they're eight inches bigger in a total in each direction or four inches each direction. He said, now you're four inches closer to first as the second base and four inches closer to the second in the first base. Now that eight inches is the difference between out and safe. And maybe people will try to steal bases again. You know, he's just trying to think about the excitement, but you've closed so many holes to players being able to express their athleticism mm -hmm. in certain ways, right? Because, okay, everybody, well, outside of shifting, the ball's not even in play. It's over the fence. It's in the catcher's mitt, strike out, or you're walking. I mean, that's what's, and so all this dead time, dead space, nothing's happening is not only, you know, slow and not that exciting, but it's also jeopardizing the fact that you have these great athletes that you can't even see them do anything but hit the ball on the fence. Right. And, um, and so, so that's the concern I, I value, I'm an engineer, so I value how they're trying to find value. I value that money ball or what, you know, you found value in players that wouldn't ordinarily, Kevin Kiermeyer is an asset and, yep. they, you know, I value that they're looking at defense. So there's, there's absolutely positives, but they're, they're going to have to look at um, the spirit, the soul of the game. They're, they're going to have to look at the entertainment value. And they're going to have to continue to drill down on, on the pace and celebrating these great athletes uh, and, and, and try to embrace risk a little bit more. Yeah. And that's, and that's funny that you said that and you brought up Theo because I was like watching one of his recent um, interviews since he resigned and he kind of mentioned like, he's not going to be leaving the game of baseball and he wants to try to help. And, you know, one of the things he talks about is how this has been so many more strikeouts in the league. You know, he wants to try to bring out like the athleticism and the players and just, and just make it more entertaining for the fans. I mean, is there anything that you think of that like, you think could make a positive impact in that regard for the league? Well, I think in entertainment, I think it goes together with action and, and just things happening, balls in play, that would help. Now, how do you do that? You can't tell pitchers to throw slower. <laughs> you know, you can't, you know, tell people to get bigger bats. I guess, you know, uh, but it, it, it's, it's somewhat of a cultural phenomenon and it's hard to, you know, we had uh, Brian Kenny on our podcast with Jason Stark. And he said, he's like, well, what's the genie's out of the bottle now because now kids in third grade are like, know that they have to throw harder. That's how they get drafted velocity. So it's hard to like have generations of players put so much emphasis on speed and not location or finesse or movement or whatever. So that's a tough one or hitting the ball, the long changle or all these things. Right. So so there's there's a generational component that's going to have to take shape if you're going to change this culture. 
And, and yeah, you know, I, I joked around the wall street journal article, like, well, if we just had one pitch outcomes, you could get your three pitch, you could get your three outcome game quicker, right. It'd speed up the game. Right. You know I mean? That's how, I mean, if you go to, if you take it to its natural conclusion, that's where you end up. Okay. I just want three outcomes. So why don't we just get to it sooner? So we don't have to deal with all these foul balls and all that. Right. Right. So if you don't go down that extreme road, then you got to really look at what entertains people. I think action is part of it. I think you need, I think you have to promote the game, you know, in a different way sometimes to get the younger generation baseball skews uh, older, which I appreciate, but I also know that you need that next generation to, and, and I'd say you'd spend a lot of time asking them what's interesting about baseball, what you'd like to see more of and um, you know, pace of game, things like that. And, and, and I think you, you know, have to find ways to, you know, just take the edge off this risk averse culture. You know, you have to, uh, you know, Joe Madden was on our podcast and he said, everybody has the same data and therefore everybody is producing a Ford. And, you know, and he wasn't saying that insultingly to Ford. It's just that everybody's making the same car right. because they have the same data. And you don't, you know, I, you know, I just think of like, oh, the Cardinals on the AstroTurf and the, you know, you just go back in time and you think about the, the Bash brothers or whatever, you know, granted they had a little extra help, but you know, the, uh, you know, so I don't know. I, I, that is, um, that's part of it. So I, I hope that we continue to pay attention to these changes and really be deliberate. I, I 2020 was good for that uh, because it made the game adapt and innovate out of necessity and that spirit of that could could yield some good uh, progress in in making the game you know more entertaining mm-hmm. and less leaning on some of the heavy heavy data points where you kind of you're, you're you're just stuck in the numbers. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we'll see what comes down. I'm sure they'll they're going to make a few changes here and there in the next few years. So we'll definitely have to keep an eye on that. But otherwise, you know, Doug. Thank you again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. This has been an awesome interview, and I think I can speak for everyone from the Cape League. We really appreciate you being such an awesome advocate for us, but then also just you know the work that you're doing to make a difference out in the world and you know, just to make everything a better place. And if we had, again, like I said, if we had more people like you, it would be, uh, it'd be a much um, more inclusive place. But you know, keep up that good work. We really appreciate it. And um, you know, we'll be keeping an eye on you going forward at ESPN and, uh, and, and beyond. Yeah, I appreciate you having me and, uh, you know, just shout out to Cape and the Cape family. Got to go back to the Donahue, John Donahue, Mary Donahue, Jane Donahue, Lizzie Donahue, the Donahues. That's Donahues. <laughs> the second family out there. So I want to give them some love and uh, thank for, for all their love, all the years and support. And uh, to the Cape, keep going strong out there. It's a beautiful game, a brand of baseball. Keep it going. All right, and that wraps up this episode of the Cape League Podcast. Thank you again to Doug for coming on. There was a great interview. And thank you all of you for tuning in. If you haven't yet, please go follow us on Twitter and Instagram. But otherwise, we'll be back next week for the next episode of the season. Take care, everybody.